This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The current totals in the United States for the coronavirus stand at around 2.93 million cases and just over 130,000 deaths. And the expectations are those numbers will rise incrementally with outbreaks in several states across the nation. There seems to be a renewed push to have people wear face coverings when they're out in public to cut back on faster spread. One of the faces of the coronavirus task force joining us right now, Dr. Deborah Burks. Dr. Burks, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So give the listeners of our show a a little sense of where you think we are right now in tackling the virus. So in the areas where we had significant experience with the virus in March and April through the Northeast, across the Midwest from Chicago to Detroit, you know, across to Boston, down to Philadelphia, Washington, those areas are still doing pretty well. We are starting to see a small uptick, but the South, which didn't experience a significant outbreak through the March-April timeframe, I think came at this opening in a different way than the Northeast or the Midwest that had experience with the outbreak. And so when they opened, instead of Gating closely through all of the recommended gates, you know, a lot of individuals and a lot of businesses, instead of driving 25 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, um, stepped on the gas and started going 65. And it's really evident now in the spread of cases across most age groups. We're very grateful that individuals in the older age group continue to shelter. They need to continue to do that across the South so that we can ensure that those with a pre-existing condition and those over 65 are protected from this virus, which can be deadly in their age group. What then is is the expectation over the next couple of months for the numbers of cases and the number of deaths? Because we're seeing the number of cases rise, but the ratio of deaths has been going down over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think that that's um, an evidence of who is getting infected and who is continuing to really protect themselves by staying home and staying out of high-risk situations. I think we have a much better sense on what creates risk, what creates risk in public, what creates risk in private. Certainly, um, the work that the governors have done to mandate face masks in all public spaces is really critical to slowing the spread of this virus. We think not only these masks have a, have clear evidence, clear scientific data to show that they help stopping the spread between individuals. They may also somewhat protect the individual who is wearing the mask, which I find encouraging. But really critically, you're wearing the mask to protect others. The role of social distancing and really the importance of social distancing both inside and outside. And so carrying parties into the indoors or um, mass gatherings lead to pretty substantial spread because the amount of asymptomatic people who have no symptoms at all who are carrying the virus and spreading the virus and don't know they're doing it. Is there enough of a recognition by the public of that correlation between having been inside for a while and and obviously something may may have percolated at that point then to being outside when you're outside in the public and and not having a face covering being out there you know, I think when that people saw, um, particularly young people, when they saw the Memorial Day pictures, when they saw people going to the streets, not all of them in face masks, and, and all of these issues on social media showing up, I think it really gave people the sense that the virus wasn't a problem anymore. And 
frankly, we stopped really covering it in the details that it needed to be covered to really give the public a warning about how this virus spreads. I think now there's real situational awareness across the United States. I think it's on all of us in public health to really find messages that resonate with each age group so that the Gen Zers and the millennials really understand what they need to do to protect themselves and their parents and their grandparents from disease. I think together with work that we can do as individuals combined with work that the state and local governments are doing to really reinforce these messages and the work that we need to do as a federal government to make sure testing is even more widely available. Over the next two or three weeks, I'm I'm hoping that we see really stabilization and not these continued um, upward um, case numbers. One of the ideas you talked about recently was pool testing and, you know, to try and significantly lift the numbers of people being tested every day. How important could that be as a component? Well, I'm a very practical person, so we do have research going on, and there are new platforms added week by week, but we need a, we need a game changer right now. And so there's two types of pooled testing, one in which the laboratories can pool, bringing together samples where they collect them individually, pool them in the laboratory so that they can increase throughput and decrease turnaround times. And you can hear that a lot of the commercial labs are extending their turnaround times. They need to move to pooling right now. Um, And the FDA has put out guidance on how to do that. There's another kind of pooling that I think is really important um, for both families and communities where there's spread, universities, colleges, and areas like um, um, primary schools and secondary schools where you want to do surveillance testing. And so that is pooling at the time of sampling, where you sample everybody in that dorm room, put it in the same vial, run that test if it's positive. You say all four of them or all five of them should isolate, and then you do the, go back and do individual testing. But you've taken out that whole transmission zone where there is virus circulating. And so that can be used to keep kids in college, kids in universities, and kids in um, primary and secondary school, because you can do that kind of routine screening. If you have 10 and 30 in a classroom, you could test all 30 with three tests. So this is what we're talking about at the collection space. So there's pooling in the laboratory to really increase the throughput, and there's pooling at the time of sampling as a surveillance technique to really find where the virus is circulating and remove um, the virus out of that circulation through quarantining individuals. Well, and seemingly that becomes an important component moving forward then also for continuing to open up the economy, because if you can get the testing done in groups, whether it be at the the university level or at the, the grade school level, then what you're also doing is opening it up for potentially their parents as well. And that, uh, you know, provides a a level of security for kids going back to school and, and parents being able to go back to work. Yeah, and I think the exciting thing about this is um, really getting the FDA to say this kind of surveillance does not have to be done in a CLIA or approved laboratory. And this brings online then all of our research capacity. Right now, our research capacity, except for the Broad, is more or less offline in the United States. And they have amazing number of platforms that can run these tests. If we can bring those online, those individuals can service surveillance in communities or colleges their universities, and their um, primary and secondary schools in their communities. And it really becomes another parallel pathway to really get that testing 
This the pooling in the lab could increase testing to well over a million and a half, two million tests a day, bringing on our research capacity and doing this pooling of the samples at the time of collection, which makes it much easier um, and pulls people out that are positive, and then they go to a diagnostic lab to get their individual tests. That allows you to get to the three, four, and five million tests a day that many people have talked about, and it's doable today. Um, that's the great thing about living in America. We can do this innovative stuff, um, and we can do it quickly, so it's really a time for everyone to step up and really expand our ability to go from about 700,000 tests a day up into the three to five million range. If you can talk a little bit about the the importance of, of Operation Warp Speed and and obviously the news today about the uh, the funding going out to Regeneron and Novavax as well, uh, because that I, I, look as much as we want to socially distance and and wear masks, you obviously are going to need to have the vaccines, the therapies, and such uh, coming into the fall to to really tackle this, aren't we not? Yeah, this gets back to your prior question about mortality and why mortality hasn't spiked in the same way. Remember when we were having these number of cases before, um, we were having about 2,500 people succumbing to this per day, um, and we're well under 1,000. A lot of this speaks to providing more rapid therapeutics from from, um, remdesivir to to use of convalescent plasma to now what you just talked about, funding the monoclonal antibodies that can be used both as a prophylactic and a therapeutic. And then the fact that there are three different independent type platforms moving forward, each with two candidates in it. To me, that's the most exciting part about the warp speed in that we have one type of platform moving forward that relies on what we call messenger RNA, one relying on vector expression, and um, two candidates in that, and then two candidates in um, working forward in what we call subunit protein vaccines. That gives me real hope that one of these is going to hit and work because you're not, they're not similar. They're not all the same. And so we really do have the ability to activate different, different parts of our immune system and see which parts of the immune system have the biggest impact on stopping um, this virus and working as an effective vaccine. So you expect that there will be multiple vaccines or therapies that will have to be in play here? I know that there will be multiple vaccines tested. Um, I can't predict which one of these platforms will work. From the therapeutic side, just to be clear, this is a virus unlike HIV where getting infected, you produce an immune response that clears the virus in 99 plus percent of the cases and people recover by and large and do well. And so that gives you a roadmap of what you need to produce. And so that's the roadmap that's being utilized to both generate monoclonal antibodies and these vaccines. That's very different than we have in HIV where we, except for the cases of transplant, we don't really have a roadmap to what a cure looks like for HIV or a vaccine route. So this is really a very different type of vaccine development for those of us who have experience with HIV, TB, and malaria vaccine development. What's your general message to the public then right now? 
that we have the control to change the course of this virus today. Um, and it will take individual action, um, wearing masks in public everywhere in the United States, wearing masks around the vulnerable inside, um, wearing masks in the workplace, um, really curtailing our activities. Um, there's a lot of models that say if we just cut in half what we did in February as far as eating out and going out and doing things, that that will have a tremendous impact on this viral spread. We know how to stop viral spread. We have that capacity in our hands. I think because it's not particularly high tech, it doesn't seem as important. But truly, wearing masks, social distancing, washing hands, and protecting the vulnerable will change the course of this pandemic in the United States. And then you add to that the therapeutics to really improve outcomes for everybody and the vaccines that are under development. We have a simultaneous three-pronged way to move forward as a country. Dr. Burks, thanks very much for your time today. Look forward to talking to you again down the road. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you, Dr. Deborah Burks, joining us here on Wharton Business Daily. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.